0: Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. In this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Amir Modahari. Amir is a versatile leader in creative problem solving for businesses around the globe. From co-founding Swiftpad in healthcare, to his own agency, to working with IBM and beyond, Amir's holistic approach delivers innovative solutions to clients' most complex challenges. Maxine talks to him to find out
1: more. Well, thank you so much, Amir, for for joining us today. Um, probably a good place to start is could you introduce yourself to the label sessions audience, please?
0: Yeah, for sure. My name is Amir. Um, I'm a designer, uh, developer, uh, kind of a I like to say like a full set full stack individual in the sense that i can kind of like to build things and desire things and yeah like i really enjoy building um digital products and experiences with a lot of emphasis focus on strategy and experience um you know my you know some of the past work i've done has been a lot of focused in um, the healthcare industry specifically in diagnostics uh telemedicine and uh, pharmacy um, experience wise career-wise, have a good mix of, uh, you know, working independently myself as a freelancer, building my own products, um, having an opportunity to uh, start uh, some startups, uh, running a design agency, and then spending some time working as uh, a, an entrepreneur or a corporate entrepreneur within some of uh, some bigger companies like IBM and Sunlight Financial. Uh, yeah, so that's something Ambition. about me.
1: And we think of you as very much a creative problem solver for businesses. Can you tell us how you make change happen as a kind of a a, a full stack designer developer? From my
0: experience, what I've seen is oftentimes when individuals are brought in to drive change, the first thing they do is they they want to change things. And I like to avoid that approach um, with intention because I think the most important thing is you don't want to rock the boat too much and you want to better understand how the business currently operates, um, from an operational standpoint, from a business standpoint, from the economics, but more importantly, trying to better understand what is it that we actually do, and who we're doing it for, and what problem are we solving for. Um, and I think that's that's probably a mismark in most instances where I've seen firsthand whether it's myself, I've been I've been kind of guilty of this, where we like to try to find a solution for a problem instead of identifying the problem itself and then building a solution around it. Where oftentimes you build a vitamin instead of a painkiller. Um, so when it comes to driving change, at the core of it, for me, I think it starts with pure intention of understanding the business, the customer, and what we're solving for, and what opportunities there are for change and why. And I think I'm asking ourselves why. Why are we doing this or why do we want to change? If I can find answers to those questions, then that itself will kind of help me derive what, what that change looks like.
1: I guess the risks are when people don't ask why or what's the problem. Is that they're building the wrong thing, or keeping themselves busy?
0: Yeah, they build the wrong thing, and the root of it is just because there's not a lot of interface between the person that you're building it for, or, you know, the customer. Um, firsthand, you know, I, I see a lot of companies. You know, again, I, when I say I see a lot of companies, I'm talking about myself as well because I've been guilty of this, and I think it's now a, more of a reflection point for me where. We like to do a lot of research and kind of fall into the, kind of the self self fulfilling prophecy of oh I've done a lot of research and the confirmation bias tells me that this is indeed a problem without really actually talking to customers and understanding okay what is what is this problem you're facing and why are you are you choosing to use our service or product and what is it actually doing for you and how can we make it better?
1: Talk us through some of the things that you've kind of uh, built and launched that you're proud of. Yeah, I think
0: I think I'll. One of my proudest is probably the, like the first thing I ever started, which was solving a problem for myself and something solving for a problem that I thought I think I understood pretty well. Um, initially, what happened was I grew up in a family of pharmacists, and I saw firsthand how there is an opportunity to be able to one improve the pharmacy business and bring some digital tools into it, but more importantly, look at how do you streamline the prescription delivery process. Traditionally, when you look at pharmacies, they receive prescriptions either in person, through fax, um, and uh, that is, you know, I, I, I said it right there through fax, right? And that's like that's a outdated technology. And the reality was
1: that did make me smile. Yeah,
0: there you go, right? So the the reality is that you know, being at the, you know at that time being eighteen years old or nineteen years old, um, I looked at okay, how do we how do we make this process better, right? And I was actually very naive at that time, and I think the night being naive helped me kind of approach this problem head on, right? If I look at, if I were to look at the same problem now, I'd probably come up with a hundred reasons why I shouldn't be doing this, and I think I'd have to unlearn a lot of things to be able to tackle this problem. But at that time, the night being naive, you know, I was like, you know, it was a very simple question, like, why don't I make this digital? Why can't, you know, why can't the pharmacy receive actual digital prescription instead of a paper fax? And what we looked at was we looked at the EMRs, the doctors were using and realized that there's about like a 10 to 15% market share of independent distributors of an open source EMR. The other 80% or whatever, the 85% are primarily owned by Telus and some other bigger companies. And they, you know, they essentially have the, the dominant share. And we looked at integrating these open source EMRs directly with the pharmacy management systems. The underlying challenge there was the pharmacy management systems were also partly owned by one or two companies, and the integration costs was extremely capital and uh, capital and human, res- you know, human capital and monetary capital expen- expensive, expensive, and um, and and we realized that you know for us we have no leverage to be able to actually integrate with these pharmacy management systems. What we did instead was uh, looked at building an add-on tool to their existing workflow. Um, and that was completely wrong because pharmacists are so um, uh, used to the current process of how they do it. And that's the training they go through school. That's the training they go through when they're in, you know doing their internships or whatever you want to call it, uh, their placements. And for you to come in and change that workflow was completely counterintuitive. But the value in that was pharmacists saw this as pharmacies saw this as a new business opportunity and a way to be able to draw deliver better care and improve adherence for their customers because they want to see prescriptions that are coming through digitally, customers actually coming in to fulfill it and to get it filled and actually taking the medication. And we had built this kind of like patient care experience where it let them connect with the pharmacist and get closer and get a better care. So that's where the value the value delivery was at least for pharmacies um yeah we built it you know and we learned a lot in that process and we raised some money and realized that for us to be able to kind of get to where we want to it's going to be extremely capital expensive, and it's not something that i was personally thought i could do like i was just like there's no way like i'm going against people way ahead of the game you know we returned some investor money and and we looked at okay how do we pivot from this and you know we we managed to come across a digital a bigger company in the digital pharmacy space and remote dispensing that saw the potential in what we had built. And, you know, we decided to sell like the IP and the assets to that company and and let them essentially take on um, the challenge that we were after. because um, they had all the money and resources that, you know, we didn't have. Um, and that, that that really kinda opened the world for me in terms of building a specialty around digital and healthcare, right? Understanding experiences, understanding how to design better patient experiences. And in that essentially formed the next company, you know, the agency that I had, which was the kind of design agency or product agency focused within the healthcare space. And we worked with a lot of diagnostic, healthcare, pharmacy related companies to solve the kind of the problems that I was uh, looking to solve myself. Um, and it really kind of moved it down to three principles, which was one, you know, is there some sort of purpose behind this? Are we just doing this for the sake of doing it? Or are we actually driving some sort of change? What is the impact? You no, know, I know as, as cliche as it sounds, like we wanted to be impact driven. And lastly, you know, is there credibility with the people that we're working with? Are they actually people that we would want to invest our own money in, right? I think money is something you can get back, but time is not. So we're investing a lot of our time and our money into a lot of these early stage companies. Uh, and credibility was so important for us to know that, you know, the founders or the team that was building this was someone that we would personally put our name behind.
1: Were you able in that journey when you were um, building and cultivating your craft and working in with others in the kind of additional healthcare space, were you able to keep an element of the naivety you mentioned um, that really um, seemed to be a current to help drive your first endeavor?
0: Yeah, to this day, like that's the core of it. You know, I'm constantly unlearning, always.
1: Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think I'll be honest. Like I think it's at the core culture of large companies and and just the overall. To be honest, the culture of maybe North America or Canada specifically to can be so risk driven and so risk averse. And you don't. I don't think you see that in smaller companies, which is you know obvious, or maybe in other cultures. I'm not too sure, but I think that naive that naivety. Being—I don't know the right way to say—but but being naive essentially is such a core element of everything I do now to this day um, that I would say is probably the like is the driving factor for a lot of what I do and whether the success or failures that come with it. You know, instead of taking all the time to go through discovery and validation and cost-benefit analysis and competitive research. Why not just build the thing really quickly, identifying what that whatever MVP is and whatever the problem you're trying to solve for, and let that be the validating factor itself. Now that makes that formula makes sense if you're a small team and you know you you're structured in a way as a team from development and design standpoint to be able to validate that quickly, where that naive being naive can can work to your advantage. But obviously, when you take that into account to like a bigger company, that's not that it's not a one size fits all. It might not work necessarily um but there's certain elements of it that you can take and and, and kind of apply that and i think looking at my career you know i spent some time at ibm um i wasn't able to apply that as much actually you know a little bit but mainly i think my last role at sunlife i was part of kind of like an inner startup called prosper that's where i think i would, I joined personally and I think that that was what was interesting to me was because I was able to bring that kind of startup entrepreneurial background and apply some of the risk-taking approach and the naive approach to kind of doing things and building things.
1: And how is that for you um, personally when you're leaning into that environment, suggesting what it sounds like a slightly different approach or to build something and test it out when there are so many different voices it seems talking about trying to be correct and right over time and risk-averse and understanding all the impacts before you, you're really letting the thing flourish. How did you kind of cope within those environments?
0: Yeah, like there's so many different ways that can answer that question. And I think it, it completely depends on the setting and environment that you're in and the level that you're operating at, right? And it's a completely different approach if you're at a director level, executive level within a corporate environment within a corporate startup environment, or if you're a complete startup team. From a corporate standpoint, within bigger companies, I think it comes down to understanding, almost taking a very Socratic way or, or approach to it, where asking yourself and asking them why. Why do you think this, you know, why is your approach like this? Not to question their, like, ability or competence or any way, but to better understand. And I think, you know, being able to reflect and understand to the intention behind why they're taking that approach or why they're making that decision or why that is a path that they want to take and taking that into perspective. And you also kind of, you know, have to take like um, their personal motivation into, as a factor as well. Like the reality is there's there's individuals and, 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 I, and I think I understood that better when, when I joined that are so bought into how like, but to be honest the corporate ladder right that that, that their decision making process is not at the moment it like just just a moment decision making process it's at a, such a bigger level it's like this decision i make how does it impact my career path within this company itself right and what sort of risks am i exposing myself into or what's the perception that i'm going to have by saying yes to this decision and it's a lot more calculated in a way I wasn't even thinking about. So to answer your question around how do you navigate so many different voices and perspectives, I think it's just building empathy, understanding the approach and the intention behind it, and taking none to factor. And there's never going to be, it's, it's not a one and zero approach. It's, it's always going to be a, a middle. And you have to really kind of compromise and understand and have empathy towards yourself and the people around you.
1: To be a mirror about how you cultivate your craft as a maker so you mentioned being like a full stack designer developer Um, you you cover even in this conversation everything from inside product development concept development and i know that um your experience building things and designing things can you just um shed some light on how you've cultivated your craft in those different skill sets Because I'm really interested in the perspective that you bring by being across mm-hmm. the board.
0: Yeah. How do you cultivate that? Yeah, like, like are you saying like, how do you cultivate each aspect of product development from design to development? Like, is that where you're referring I to? I think you're
1: unusual because I think you both do design development, are interested in no code development as well. So, yeah. It's, yeah. so from an outsider, I think what, label sessions is really excited to work with you because I think you bring a voice around how you can make change happen faster. And you've done it by cultivating skill sets across the product development suite, as well as being um, a startup founder as well. And you've managed to do that across Uh the board. And I'm interested in how do you find that? How do you um, get better in one thing and not lose touch in another?
0: So full disclosure, Like, I'm actually like it, it, you know you know what i'm saying where it's like oh like jack of all trades master of none i'm i'm that like i'm the perfect example of that where you know i can do i can design but am i the best designer no way like i i'd probably you know working in a design team i'm so unconventional with my approach which has its advantages and disadvantages but at the same time it's nowhere close to someone that specializes to that and that's that's you know that's not a surprise um same when it comes to development and it comes to um, strategy, whatever the case is. But I think the one um, advantage it's put me at is, it's enabled me to build perspective and understanding of each different facet of product strategy, design and development, and take that factor into account when it comes to decision-making process. So I may not be the best designer, but I may not be the best en- you know, engineer but I'm probably a better decision maker decision maker when it comes to approaching product development or product strategy. Because I can take a look at, you know, one from a product standpoint, what factors take to account to understand, okay, like what is the problem we're trying to solve for? And what is the bare minimum that we need to account for to be able to say, okay, you know what? There is desirability, feasibility, and viability in whatever it is that we're doing, right? Because oftentimes you see scope creep such a big factor into product development And the reality of it is it doesn't really, you know, like more features are not going to bring more revenue if it doesn't solve for the problem. So with that in mind, when I will look at, you know, when I look at product development and approaches, I can say, okay, how I know having a rough idea around, you know, how how to solve for this problem, how to design an experience that is minimum viably enough to be able to solve for that specific problem that tackles whatever challenges the user is going through. And more importantly... I can take that all into account from an engineering standpoint to say, okay, here's what I think realistically is going to take, and I, and and I think the learning curve for that has actually decreased quite a bit with introduction of like GPT and ChatGPT and all that, because at the end of the day, you can you can work with like ChatGPT and better understand. Like I'm not a good backend developer, and there's times where I have to make certain decisions that I don't know the answers to because I don't know backend development as well, and I I look at AI to enable some of that process for me to say, okay, well I think. You know, looking at these 10 features, the eight of these make the most sense because this is what the development effort for that looks like. And it's gonna hit all these marks when it comes to desirability, feasibility, and viability. So when it comes to actually managing the scope of whatever it is that we're trying to build for in line with the viability and the problem solving space, that's where it kind of puts me at an advantage. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team.
1: What advice would you give to other people in the product development space on how to develop their decision-making capabilities? and Well
0: learning how to code I think my biggest regret was I I started I actually started building websites and coding when I was 17 or 18 and then I stopped and I didn't invest as much time into it but it wasn't until kind of maybe the last year and a half that I got more invested into it and I have more aspirations to you know become a better developer and it's substantially changed my trajectory and perspective towards everything you know now I'm in a place where I'm personally, you know, I've started multiple businesses with others in the space of, you know, digital products and SaaS and services. And the number one principle at this point is like, if you don't know how to code or, or don't have a, if you haven't built a website yourself or don't know how to code or don't have a basic technical uh, t- technical understanding, then there is no compatibility for us to work together. Because at the root of it, like the best businesses, in my opinion, are Engineering competent teams that are technically technically competent teams, essentially, right? I think that's the most important part because I've seen firsthand a lot of product and design people, which I think lack some technical understanding, and that is a big gap when it comes to the decision making process. And it, you know, they oftentimes lack questioning or understanding of why certain things are happening. I've seen it firsthand where developers will come and throw an insane kind of estimate on some development effort for something, and the product manager is like, oh, "Okay, cool." And I'm like, no, like <laughs> it shouldn't take X amount of days to do that specific feature, but you're not questioning that because you don't have a good understanding. And, and I think that's probably the biggest gap when it comes to uh, a lot of teams, specifically within corporate environments are building them. And this is not a knock on any of the individuals that don't know how to code or anything like that. But I think, you know, looking at a career standpoint, having technical understanding is probably um, the biggest advantage you can have. And that's something I was missing and I wish I did it sooner.
1: So uh, tell me, Ami, what's on the horizon for you? What are the kind of the big problems you're you're looking to solve next? You mentioned working with different kind of other entrepreneurs, having kind of a different kind of a startups under your belt. Um, we're, we're quite interested in, in hearing what's that.
0: Absolutely. Um, there's kind of three areas that I'm particularly interested in. And one is my short-term goal is to actually build a holding company that manages a portfolio of different products and services service-based businesses and product-based businesses Um, at this point right now we uh, I've started you know started looking into kind of essentially started um, like a design research company that focuses on specifically working with companies on better understanding the customers building better experiences and really focusing on building the best onboarding and retention based experiences for them Um, so that's kind of one part of the business that we started. I've also started a, a no-code studio uh, where we specifically work with mid-sized companies, mid-sized and up companies to build microsites uh, strictly with Webflow for them. So uh, we're able to move at a scale um, and also kind of have built, started working, and this is not you know, just me only, there's other people involved, but we've started working on um, building uh, like a, a suit of SaaS businesses like analytics-based businesses within the no-code space. So my biggest bet is within no-code. Um, and it, with, you know, within that bet, there's multiple small bets that we're making. So with a design research company, with the no-code microsite development company, and then actually building a suit of products um, that complement our businesses. So right now we're building like a microsites for a company right now in the healthcare space. And we're looking at how do we improve the landing page conversions on their site and the and the call to actions. And we're using our own analytics tool that we've built as part of that service offering, um, which is solving our own problems. So um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like we, I started this, you know, we started this business like maybe two months ago. I, I left my corporate job two months ago and we're already like close to 30,000 recurring revenue, uh, half a million in run rate. Um, and this is me not even putting it out there. <laughs> So um you know I think I think the aspirations are build a holding company around that and and, and see where it goes
1: and that big bet on no code automation
0: yeah exactly we're like we're doing a full um full like vertical integration right so we have the design research company which is its own thing but we have this no code studio and then we built a suite of different apps that integrate within all these no code tools like Waffle, for example that we use <laughs> ourselves <laughs> so like we built one of one I think the like the only, um no code analytics tool that lets you track conversions on websites automatically without any custom code that's the tool we built it has its own recurring customers but we also use it with our own customers and our services as well so that's um that's our focus right now
1: and do you find so what do you think um do you think that enterprise clients are aware of the benefits of no code
0: development i actually don't think benefit uh enterprise companies should utilize no code specifically for development of any sort of application experiences. There is potential, and it will get there, but maturity-wise, we're not there yet, specifically for enterprise clients to take this on. Because when it comes to the procurement process, the risk decision-making process, and the scalability and the future-proof, it's not there yet. Now, mid-sized companies and startups, absolutely. If you're looking to validate a product or experience, I know, I, I know uh, an independent founder that has built One of like the biggest apps in transcription summary, like audio space. And it's all built by no code. And it's probably doing like, I think half a million or a million or something like that. Some crazy number. There's a lot of founders right now that are doing multi-million dollar like exits within the no code space. And it makes a lot of sense for them. Mid-sized startups, uh, enterprise kind of. Now where no code makes the most sense for enterprise companies or mid-sized companies is microsite development specifically if you are within the marketing function of any sort of enterprise company whether you're a director of marketing or vp of marketing you being able to utilize no code development specifically webflow or framer support your marketing strategy by having micro micro microsites that are scalable and non-developer dependent you're guaranteed for promotion like that's that's the reality of it. I think that's probably the biggest gap. A lot of these enterprise companies I've seen firsthand are using AEM, which is made for scalability, and it's not, because the <laughs> the reality of it is you're still developing, you're still dependent on AEM specific developers. That is freaking archaic. Like this is 2023. Like who uses AEM anymore? And two. You still have developer dependencies because a lot of times these environments are built in ways that developers are required to do some sort of custom work, anyways, to, to publish this for you. And it's just the nature of this current environment right now because they're they're locked into the vendors. A developers want to keep their job and they want to be, they don't want to be uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, what's the term I'm looking for? They they still want to be needed. I guess I forgot what 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 the term I'm looking for is. But anyways. Um, so back to your question, yeah, like I think there's a huge opportunity. If I if I was a director of marketing or VP of marketing right now, I would do every anything in my willpower to be able to utilize something like whatflow framework because the reality is is you will no longer have developer dependency and you can move at a lot faster pace in a much more cost-effective way to shift your digital strategy from a landing page to like the entire funnel from start to finish. By by using tools like this, so um, so yeah, I think that's what I would say is if you're an enterprise company, Webflow for microsite development, no to no 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 to app development. If you're a smaller startup, absolutely you should utilize it. And you know I'm I'm not like this is strictly speaking from experience. Like this is what I've done for the past five years, where we've seen the cost savings and the the promotions that people that we work with get when they switch to to, to Webflow for their marketing strategy.
1: So I'm going to move to a bit of a quick fire round. Um, where do you go to feed your brain creatively?
0: Actually, I have this weird obsession lately with studying boring businesses. <laughs> um, boring businesses is like a weird rabbit hole that I've gone through. And this is like, basically, um, I'll give you an example. Like, have you ever had a need to like, um, uh, remove the background of an image? No. There- like a background image remover. Yeah. The first thing you know, you type in remove image background, and that first website you click and upload, right? That website is like one person running it, and they're making millions of dollars. And I think they ended up selling it to Canva. I'm very much interested in like businesses like that right now, where you know a single website that all it does is like currency conversion or generates a password, and that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and it's by one person, and they don't do anything. So I'm very much interested in that, and that's what I use to creatively feed my brain sometimes to think about. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't go and tackle a big problem. Maybe this is what I should do instead. <laughs> um, which is so counterintuitive because I was talking about impact and purpose. But uh, but yeah, that's where I look creatively to kind of help me rewire my brain around when it comes to solving for problems and building businesses. Um, I really enjoy um, just sometimes reading like philosophy and Socrates and just, yeah, like just anything psychology based is where I look at creatively. But I try to avoid overconsumption of information. My brain's like all over the place. I need less, not more.
1: So what do you think is overhyped right now? Or is there anything that you think is really interesting that's just not picked up by the mainstream? Overhyped? I mean, like, obviously the AI stuff,
0: some of it is overhyped. And you see a lot of these, like, LinkedIn influencers, you know, you're using chat GPT on easy mode. Here's how you can come to events. Like, those, I, Like the, that's the people that are feeding into the hype, and I don't like that too much. Um, the reality is... is AI is a big enabler. I don't think it's going to take people's jobs. It's going to enhance them and it's going to provide opportunities for upskill. Um, what I think we'll see is two trends. More people immigrating out of their resident country and traveling the world and becoming more nomadic, which we've already seen that, but it's only going to get like more prominent. And then we're going to see a rise of more independent developers and marketers like i'm personally you know like for the past couple of years i've been wa- watching this very closely seeing a lot more indie hackers that are building multi-million dollar businesses just by themselves or the- themselves alone and i think that's what i look to is inspiration like aspiration wise as well it's like how do i as a one person a two b- two person business build a five to ten million dollar business without any employees so that's Amazing. where i think we're going to see a trend of more happening
1: uh what title would you give your biopic or autobiography
0: Uh, overthinker. (laughs) The overthinker, maybe. I'd probably get... Yeah, that's probably it.
1: I like it. Unlearning, overthinking, maybe. What do you do when you're not working?
0: What do I do when I'm not working? Uh, I'm working. I'm always working. I enjoy it. I love, love, love working.
1: On a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you, Amir?
0: Oh, like, I'm a freaking 11, 12, easily. The weirder the better. Wonderful. If you're not weird, then there's no place to be you have to be weird
1: that's perfect thank you so much um i've run through everything i wanted to talk to you about is there anything you um i maybe didn't ask you that you wanted to mention
0: no i talked too much i i, I think i talked more than i should have so i think covered it <laughs> not at all so concludes another episode of label sessions presents be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice and of course start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com